the decade from the 2008 global financial crisis to the 2020 coronavirus pandemic has seen a real transformation of the world order. This very nature of international relations and its rules is changing before our eyes. For India, this means optimal relationships with all the major powers to best advance its goals. It also requires a bolder and non-reciprocal approach to the immediate and extended neighborhood. The global footprint is now in the making that leverages India's greater capability and relevance as well as its unique diaspora. This era of global upheaval entails greater expectations from India, putting it on the path to becoming a leading power. Namaskar and welcome to today's episode, to today's podcast of the Divine Buzz Diaries Diplomacy. Here we analyze global paradigms, changing world orders and how diplomacy could soothe out most of the world's problems. Today. We are here to read, understand and learn more from India's External Affairs Minister S. Jaishankar. In the India way, Dr. S. Jaishankar, India's Ministry of External Affairs, analyzes the challenges and spells out possible policy responses. In doing so, he is very conscious of balancing India's national interest with international responsibilities. He places this thinking in the context of history and tradition, appropriate for a civilizational power that seeks to reclaim its place on the world stage. Um, Today, uh, quite interestingly, we will discuss about the Pacific Indian and debate or, you know, enhance our knowledge on a re-emerging maritime outlook in Mr. Jaishankar's words. He says as the world changes, it will naturally throw up new concepts and terminology. Indo-Pacific is among the more recent additions to the global strategic lexicon because Donald Trump used this term in the 2017 APEC or APEC summit and the US Pacific Command was renamed as the Indo-Pacific one. Americans think they invented it. The Japanese, however, believe the credit should really go to them. After all, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe spoke at the Indian Parliament of the confluence of two oceans more than a decade ago. Indians themselves are not to be left behind, underlining that the Indo-Pacific has been tossed around in their naval thinking even earlier. And by establishing a dedicated division in its foreign ministry, India has signaled its attachment even more strongly. Australians to rank among the list of claimants and the ASEAN led by Indonesia has now tabled an Indo-Pacific outlook. Theorists may actually award it to a German strategist of the 1980s, Karl Hochfer, even though his perspective was that of a Eurasian strategist. But whatever its analysis and analytics are, Indo-Pacific today owes its existence primarily to the compulsions of its practitioners. The words are changing as we speak and the Indo-Pacific is not tomorrow's forecast, but today's and yesterday's reality. Many things in the world came around. It is worth reflecting on the fact that the Royal Navy acted upon an Indo-Pacific approach for decades without necessarily articulating the term. So today as some powers aspire and other powers plan, a few prepare and the rest ponder what drives the debate 
and what the debate needs a clarity divorced from the claims of ownership. Semantics should not obscure from the fact that events are unfolding that give this concept a greater texture with each passing day. The Indo-Pacific naturally means different things to different powers, but it undeniably is a priority for all of them. For India, it is a logical next step beyond the Act East and a transcendental of the confines of South Asia. For Japan, the movement into the Indian Ocean could be a part of its strategic evolution. For the US, a unified theatre addresses convergences that are central to its posture. Russia, for its part, could visualize this as a part of new emphasis on the Far East. For Europe, it is a case for a return to a region from which it withdrew, and the stakes are particularly high for China, as its maritime capabilities are the prerequisite to its emergence as a global superpower. This is unquestionably the arena for the contemporary version of the great game, where multiple players with diverse ambitions display their strategic skills. Their efforts at particularly building convergences and understanding contentions will have a particular importance as if it takes on a global lifetime. The Indo-Pacific may be in fashion as a strategic concept now, but it has been an economic and cultural fact for centuries. After all, Indians and Arabs have left their imprint all the way up to the eastern coast of China, just as the people of Southeast Asia did on Africa. In fact, this reality is not remote at all, and the seamlessness of waters only sharpened the appetite of the Western powers who entered it. The British Empire operated its own version of the Indo-Pacific that was neither free nor open. Its visualizations of both resources and interests was across an integrated zone, explaining many of the events of the 19th and 20th centuries. Other powers, in turn, followed the approach of the dominant one. If Indian troops fought in the Boxer Rebellion, then the Japanese too came all the way to Singapore and Burma. And not least, it was enormous logistical effort that from India and the Anglo-American alliance that sustained China in its war against Japan in 1942. The earlier era of the Indo-Pacific lasted until 1945 and was reflected in the presence of British and American forces across the region. After the war, Indian troops were deployed in seven prefectures of Chugoku and Shikoku in Japan. In the 25th of the Gurkhas even mounted guard at the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. What separated the Indian and Pacific theatres thereafter was the global supersession of the UK by the US that shifted the centre of gravity to the Pacific, strengthened thereafter by the revolution in China and the war in Korea. As for the UK, India's independence and its own falling back to the Gulf focused its interest westwards. The result was that a continuum gave way to narrower domains that were solidified by military command jurisdictions. For India's purposes, what is important is that just as the dominance of the US undid Indo-Pacific after 1945, American adjustments can now help reinvent it. This may not just by itself be a process but because there are other autonomous processes moving in the same direction. They include the ambitions of China, the interests of India, the posture of Japan, the confidence of Australia, and the awareness of ASEAN. 
like alliances strategic concepts also respond to times and the moment of indo pacific has now arrived says dr jay shankar as with many other developments in the world today the trigger for indo pacific too is the change in the american stance and the rise of china because the former is a more reactive it makes sense to center analysis around the latter a decade ago china debated vigorously and debated publicly the role of maritime power in its future part of that was to address a traditional strategic dilemma posed by the limitations of its eastern seaboard and multiple island chains beyond but by 2009 there was also a larger quest which subsumed this argument chinese policy makers had already recognized that if that nation was to emerge as a global power it must perforce be a maritime one the ensuing debate upended a historical tradition quite comprehensively in that sense 2012 was not just a transition in political leadership but in strategic thinking as well this is how the indo pacific gained its importance all over the years and um, it is now important for the entire world even today and of course in the future thanks for joining in in today's podcast of the divine buzz diaries we have analyzed just another perspective that is indo china thank you again bye bye